0: Nobody should ever want or desire to be living in a garage. <laughs> it's, it's not like... The, it's, not, it's not glamorous. No, this it's not is not glamorous. like the path to success. <laughs> it, 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 it's like the of, path of least amount of money spent right. on anything other than the business.
1: I think when you believe in something, you can get where you need to get to no matter what.
2: Someone's got to be on top. Why not me? Welcome to Zero to IPO,
3: This time around, we're talking about what it takes to turn the scrappy startup in your parents' garage into a thriving company with offices all over the world. I'm Frederick Karest, co-founder and COO of Okta, a company that started with two borrowed desks overlooking the San Francisco dumpster painting yard. And I'm Joshua Davis, co-founder of Epic, which started in my child's bedroom, uh, and a contributing editor at Wired. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the garage days, That stretch of time when your company is up and running, but still in its early stages. You've raised your first round, you've hired your first employees, you actually can afford a real desk, maybe, but not an entire office. But you're getting there. And it's kind of exciting. Last episode, we talked about the big ideas that started some of the biggest companies in the world. But as we heard, the idea is just the start. How do you take that next step? We're going to hear from Domo's Josh James, Eventbrite's Julia Hartz, Maggie Wilderotter of AT&T and Frontier Communications, and our first guest, Aaron Levy of Box. Aaron and his eventual co-founders had unsuccessfully kicked the idea for Box around as undergrads. But as more and more businesses started relying on the cloud, they saw an opportunity that they couldn't pass up. We're going to hear Aaron's story about making the tough decision to drop out of college and pursue Box full-time, But before we get into that, here's Aaron telling us why they decided to pursue online storage when other companies had tried and failed in the past
0: there was this era uh, that had emerged, which, which came up with the idea of storing files over the internet. And the challenge was like, first of all, the challenge was everything. Um, The cost of storage was too expensive. The internet was too slow. Browsers, you literally imagine doing dial up file transfer. That was, that was the era that these, these companies were born. So it was too expensive. It was too slow. The user experiences sucked because our browsers totally sucked. And this is actually a pretty good lesson. I think in general, from a technology standpoint, Is like, oftentimes in say amazing ideas are just too early. That does not mean that, that, you know, there's not an opportunity to come back and, and you know, take the, the kind of basics of, and the foundational ideas, put them together, repackage it, um, and then and, and try again. And ultimately, that's what we were doing. You know, in this particular
3: section uh, of the show, we're talking about why so many companies start out of garages. What is it about a garage that's meaningful? I mean... Uh, it's cold. It's yeah. cold. Like, yep. it's it's what did you? Cheaper. It's cheaper. Like, than what did other you guys locations. get out yeah. of it? I mean, obviously, it's cheap, but is there is there something else? Uh, <laughs> so, so, after we started the company, uh, we got we, uh, we 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 tried to uh, we, we
0: tried to grow. We um, uh, we eventually tried to go raise some venture capital. Mm-hmm. So, our summer of our sophomore year, uh, between sophomore and, and junior year, we uh, we went to see uh, we went to Seattle where, where we had grown up. We, uh, we lived, uh, and worked, uh, kind of, uh, actually we didn't live and work together. We just worked together, um, in my co-founders kind of renovated attic and, and we, um, and, and so that was sort of our elevated garage situation. Same feel as a garage, but, but obviously
3: vertically, warmer. vertically warmer. raised,
0: and warmer. much warmer, warmer, uh, much warmer, uh, pretty, uh, you know, pretty good internet in, in that garage and, uh, and attic garage. And, uh, and so, um, so we were trying to raise uh, capital and, um, and basically, everybody turned us down. Every Any professional investor was like, ran for the hills. They were like, this is a crazy idea. Um, we were 21 and 20 at the time. My, my co-founder and I were uh, 19 and 20, I forget which one. And we, we uh, especially my co-founder Dylan, um, he had the, uh, he, he looked like he was 11 years old. Uh, he had, you know, one of these really super young faces and, and, and so it just didn't really add up. Like you're not going to get venture capitalists when, when your CFO co-founder looks like he's 11. And anyway, we got rejected massively. Nobody, nobody funded us. Uh, eventually we, we got some, some kind of, uh, some, Uh, older time VCs and and a couple kind of real estate people put in $80,000 in Seattle. And then uh, uh, we, uh, we pitched Mark Cuban over the internet, Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, uh, over email. How'd you find his email? uh, That was not hard. Um, He he was very uh, public with his email address back then. I mean, this is 05. Cuban at AOL.com. Pretty much. (laughs) I'm not that different. Um, uh, You know, in in 2005, we all wanted to make friends on the internet and and he was, he was one of those, uh, you know, people out, out there blogging with Blog Maverick. And so we, we emailed him. We were actually not even looking for funding. He, he decided to fund the company. Uh, that led us to dropping out of college because we finally had enough capital. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think Mark ended up kind of increasing our conviction about the business because we we're like, well, shit, if this billionaire believes in us, like, who are we to say that we can't do this? Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah. now, we,
3: now we're going to take it more seriously. But there was some issue at that point, I, I think, between you and your co-founder. You had to convince him to drop out because you were ready to drop out, mm. but he wasn't quite perhaps ready yeah i think i mean nobody's like ready to drop out <laughs> that's usually it's usually a it's longer a conversation
0: like dylan money has been wired ready to drop out
3: <laughs>
0: so so we we uh i mean it was multiple conversations we had to break the news in, in kind of like a multi-step process to our parents yeah, right. i'm sure there's a very specific sequence about how we did that i don't remember the the whole methodology um at, at this point but uh we, we broke the news we, we kind of at some point we got so pumped up and and amped up that we we kind of were, were super into it and we we're like okay you know, YOLO, um, before there was YOLO and, um, and, uh, we got in a minivan, uh, my, my parents' minivan, um, and drove down from Seattle to, uh, to Berkeley and my uncle was kind enough to basically let us live, uh, in his backyard, uh, effectively. And, uh, you felt like you needed to be in the Bay area. Uh, yeah. And so we, we, we uh, we decided to, uh, to make the, make the leap, um, move to, uh, uh, move to Berkeley. And, um, and then we lived in, in this sort of backyard renovated cottage garage thing, convinced two of our other high school friends to drop out as well. So Jeff and Sam, and, uh, and then they followed us a, a couple months later and then it was basically the four of us living and working together in um, uh, in these two cottages, uh, and it was you know quite literally a you know a garage that we were building the company out of.
3: So you're in that and <laughs> that first cottage garage, and then eventually I think you moved to Palo Alto, and you yeah. were in it, there was a, there were actual garages involved. There was another actual garage
0: involved. We we again lived and worked out of this uh, this sort of dual purpose building uh where we uh, slept in the garage um uh and uh and we we had split up the building in, in kind of four parts. Uh Jeff and I slept in one garage, uh Sam slept in another garage. And then Dylan got the upstairs, kind of effectively attic area. So why? How did that split up? Like, how, how did you just uh, draw straws? We, 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 well, I think it was sort of like who had the most similar hours. So Dylan gets up at like five a.m. So I didn't want to be woken up because I usually get up at like ten a.m. And Jeff had very similar hours to that. We basically lived there until uh, until our next building, where we all kind of dispersed and and you know lived in in legitimate you know, so kind of so environments. you know
3: there's the traditional um, vision of you got to be in Silicon Valley like Hewlett and Packard and start in a garage and that's where it all goes down and I think they even have it in the in the uh, in the HBO TV shows that they have now like they're actually in garages and this had nothing to do with it you're no, just like I mean, this is less expensive and it makes more sense. Yeah, we yeah.
0: were not. I mean, the, nobody should ever want or desire to be living in a garage. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's, it's not <laughs>
0: like this is not like it's the not, romantic, it's not glamorous. No, This it's is not, not like the path
3: to success. <laughs> it,
0: it, 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 it's like the path of path of least amount of money spent right. on anything other than the business. Got it. And this was a time where I remember that. I mean, the first garage. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that, you know, the challenge, I feel bad because like we, we had so many baked in benefits because of, of our situation, you know, an uncle that had extra space, the fact that we had no obligations kind of, you know, family obligations or expenses. And so, so I don't think that a lot of people can replicate what we did, but, but we were very fortunate because we could literally live off of $500 a month in salary and and live for free effectively. And not not everybody can do that. And, and but we decided to take kind of full advantage of that um, and put all of the money back into the business. And so, you know, it's hard for me to recommend that to other people because there's so many other, you know, kind of uh, obligations and situations people find themselves in. But in our case, we were able to do that.
3: I think when you listen to stories about the early days of these companies that are now massive, where you hear about the garage or your uncle's bungalow, which sounds quite nice, by the way, in Berkeley, you tend to romanticize it, but you're oftentimes in a space that's freezing cold, that uh, doesn't have a lot of light, and you're there day after day, nights and weekends... Eating ramen. Eating ramen. And ideally, you're pumped up about your idea, and that's what gets you through. But uh, I also want to acknowledge uh, that it's not all ramen and roses. Freddie, tell me about Okta's first office. We actually started in uh, our friend Hussein and Alex's offices. They were the founders of Jawbone, and we were given two desks in the back of the building. Uh, overlooking the San Francisco Dumpster Painting Yard. Very romantic. Extremely romantic. Uh, And I thought, wow, what a nice view and look. We have scenery and so forth until the first weekend that I left the window open and then came back to soot covering my entire desk. uh, And that was the first and last time I did that. What was the soot? The soot was from whatever paint color they were painting. Uh, I'm sure in, in my memory now, it must have been red paint since we were well in the red. And it had basically wafted up and what? It had wafted up from the dumpster painting yard, across the street, through the window, right onto our desks. But did it, did, did it smell like paint, or did it, it smell, smell like garbage, like or did it, it smell like both? It smelled like both. It smelled like painted garbage. <laughs> 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 so we've heard that sometimes the garage days can literally happen in a garage, and it seems like they almost live up to that Silicon Valley myth of dropping out of school and making it big. But for other entrepreneurs, those first business experiences come much, much earlier in life. Our next guest is Maggie Wilderotter, who's best known as the CEO and executive chairman of the telco giant Frontier Communications. She's also worked as an SVP at Microsoft, the president and CEO of Wink Communications, and as an executive vice president at AT AT&T Wireless. Maggie's one of those people whose business savvy was obvious from a very young age and was encouraged by her father... In some interesting ways, I read something about how I'm not sure how old you were when this happened, but you and your sister presented your parents with a business plan about why you should get your ears pierced.
1: yes, so tell me
3: like what was what was the business objective? you know walk us through the business plan
1: so I grew up in a household where uh, my parents really instilled business values in my older sister and I at a very young age. Uh, My father was an executive uh, and my mother was very supportive and very active in all the conversations we had. And we had dinner table conversations every night when my father got home about what he did at work and how things things went, different innovations he was working on. He bounced things off of us. And this is when we're anywhere from six years old on. So, the process of what happens in business has not been foreign to me when I got into business. And an example of that is when I was 12 years old, uh, I wanted to get my ears pierced. And my sister Denise was 13. So, we're 13 months apart. We're Irish twins. So, we asked my mom, and she, of course, said, Ask your father. And when we talked to my dad about it, my dad, being a good Irish Catholic, said, Well, if you are meant to have holes in your ears, god would have put them there you would have been born with them and we said well we appreciate that dad but everybody's getting holes in their ears at our age and we really want to get our ears pierced and he said well if you want to do that you have to put a business plan together
3: i mean a business plan though that seems like a a very unusual reaction (laughs) but he's a businessman
1: he's a businessman and he wanted to know what value add and why it would be acceptable for us to go do that so denise and i we put our heads together And we came up with a couple good reasons as to why. First, we felt it would help us be more accepting and fit in with our friends. We also said that we would and we uh, called um, several jewelers and you did uh, a market
3: survey. That's
1: right. Okay. And again, remember, we're 12 and 13. Sure, sure. And, you know, adolescents, it's really important to fit in with your friends. So we had to stress that as an umbrella uh, statement. I understand. But then we had called a number of jewelers and we got pricing. On getting our ears pierced, and we we pushed for a two for one for the two of us to go together, and we got a Bodo. great deal uh, at a jeweler in Asbury Park, New Jersey, uh, who happened to be Bruce Springsteen's father. What? What? Yes, and he pierced our ears. And uh, Will you say
3: that a little bit again? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear it <laughs> twice. <laughs> you, you you got through to who?
1: Bruce Springsteen's father was a jeweler in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and he pierced our ears because he gave us the best two-for-one price. And then Denise and I also in our business plan said that we would share earrings, so we didn't have to buy a lot of earrings, so we would save money on that as well.
3: But that meant that on any given day, only one of you would be wearing earrings.
1: Right. It's also taught us the art of negotiation, right, and planning. Was this all written down and presented? Yes. Yes. We wrote, handwritten, of course, back then, but we handwrote our business plan and gave it to our father. How many pages do you recall? It was probably three or four pages and
3: had you been had you seen business plans before? How did you know what to do? Yeah
1: well, as I said, we've talked about business plans for lots of things I, my, my sister had to do a business plan when she wanted to get a horse and my we had to get we did a business plan for our bicycles. so we learned the format of a business plan got it yeah, so
3: did she get the horse?
1: Yeah oh. but for the for, for it took her a year and a half to convince them to get her a horse. And my mother, every time she went to the grocery store, on her grocery list was one horse on the bottom of it. My sister would write on every grocery list. (laughs) (laughs) And would you get- We learned to be tenacious. (laughs) Would
3: you get feedback on your business plan, for instance, with the ear-piercing business plan? Did you submit it? It was rejected? You had to revise? Or did it get approved?
1: That one sailed through.
3: Another um, story of early business mojo that I've heard- Um, was that I believe it was in ninth grade, you called then-President Nixon and invited him to dinner.
1: Actually- A dinner benefit. Yes, I was actually in seventh grade, in junior high. I was uh, the president of my class and the student council, and I also sat on the city council representing the junior high and high school students in our city of Long Branch. And- it was during the Vietnam War, and we had two Vietnam vets that came back from the war that lost either one or both legs in Vietnam. And the city council was going to do a fundraising dinner for those two families. And all of us on the city council had to raise money. That was our our job. So I was thinking, well, I can, you know, I raise money for my parents, some of my parents' friends. But I said, President Nixon is the one that's responsible for this war. And for these, you know, for sending these uh, these two young men overseas to Vietnam. So I think he should come to the dinner. So I wrote a handwritten note to the president and I enclosed four tickets. And I asked him to come to the dinner and support. And I explained about the two individuals. And I just sent it. I didn't tell anybody. But I put in the note, if you would like to get in touch with me, I go to Long Branch Junior High. And here's the phone number of the office. <laughs> so about 2 weeks later i'm sitting in math class mr erm was my math teacher and someone walks in and mr erm says maggie the white house is on the phone for you downstairs and everybody turns around <laughs> they thought at you were joking they
3: thought it was a joke
1: yeah. so i go down uh, i was on the second floor i go down to uh, to the office and there's the principal the vice principal all the teachers who aren't teaching a class at that moment they're all like gathered there and i pick up the phone uh, and i have some staffer in the white house who was probably not much older than I was, Right, right. Uh, who said, the president has received your letter and unfortunately he and the first lady are busy that evening and won't be able to attend. And I said, well, that's too bad. How about the vice president? Can he come instead? And there's dead silence on the <laughs> phone. And all of a sudden he goes, uh, I think the vice president is also busy. And I said, well, are they sending a check for the tickets? Right,
3: because you sent four tickets in the I sent four
1: tickets. Yeah. And he said, uh, absolutely, we'll send a check for the tickets. I said, perfect. And I gave him the address. Thank you very much. And um, what happened is a couple of days later, what was delivered to us were the big checks. Yeah, right. You know, the big life, <laughs> life-size life <laughs> checks. I can see that coming. One for each of the vets' families. Uh, and then also a regular check that we could go deposit. But we got to present the big checks to each of the families at the dinner. That's
3: amazing. I think what what I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done any number of things in that situation in seventh grade. But w- one of them was enclose the tickets. You know, just assume, yeah. you know, p- assume, p- put it forward. That yeah, the ticket's go- I was there. going
1: for the sale. I was definitely <laughs> going for the sale. Not
3: only that, but thinking on your feet. Well, president can't make it. What about the vice president? Well, I don't think he can make it either. Great. Well, you're sending money, though. <laughs> no, like, get something. I like, mean... What is the lesson we can learn so here? So, where you're... Were your, eighth and ninth grade teachers to be in the group were sitting there watching you negotiate with the White House. Because that would probably have something to do with what would happen when you went into eighth grade. They'd be like, aha, yes, I know all about you. You were the one negotiating with the White House last year.
1: <laughs> yes, and if they weren't there, they heard about it. Exactly. Believe
3: it. <laughs> so lessons that we can draw
1: from this? I've always been fine in my own skin. And uh, I've always felt that, no just means I haven't figured out what yes is yet and I do think that served me well in business uh, I also have been always clear on the ask um, always respectful the you enclosed of the, the tickets you enclosed, yeah, the, enclosed tickets. the tickets uh, showed the value for what was being done uh, so it taught me a lot of uh, life lessons and I think when you believe in something you can uh, get where you need to get to no matter what
3: One of the things that impresses me about Maggie is this unwavering conviction she has about almost everything, whether it's getting her ears pierced or the fact that the president of the United States is going to show up to her fundraiser. Yeah, and I think there's something there, Josh, about drive. She's got this inner drive and focus and determination that she's going to do this regardless of, of what others think or how others feel. She's like, this is my focus and this is my unwavering belief that Richard Nixon should come to this event that I'm throwing. You have to have conviction in what you're thinking about or you're planning or you're going to do to convince anyone else to do it. People can see through that. And if you genuinely have that kind of conviction, I think it can be very powerful. First person you have to convince, obviously, is yourself. Our next guest is Julia Hartz from Eventbrite. And before she started her own company, she worked in Hollywood and saw exactly this. The importance of convincing yourself to do crazy shit. And it all started on the set of Jackass. Starting early on, before Eventbrite, you were a TV development executive. Yes, I was. And you were part of... Uh, the team that helped bring Jackass to the world. I was. What did you learn about business from Jackass?
4: Well, I actually was an intern at MTV during my my senior year of college. I went to Pepperdine and I interned five days a week for free, full time. And I went to school at night. That was sort of the brilliance of the, of the Pepperdine uh, optionality uh, in terms of schedule. So... I was there the day that they sent their demo in and the, my, the jackass guy, the jackass demo. And it was my job to make copies of the VHS tapes. I'm, I'm just making sure we're all back into 2000 uh, and distribute the VHS tapes to all the executives in the, in the department. And I remember handing out the tapes to each office and just trying to like give the executive a little bit of warning as to like don't 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 eat lunch and watch this video. Um, because I had watched it while I was obviously creating the the dupes of
3: the tape. What was on um, the demo though? That-
4: so that's so that's actually the biggest learning is that the demo was the pilot. But we when we acquired the series, we reshot the pilot with, you know, 20, 30 X budget. And it honestly wasn't as good as the demo. Oh, wow. So we totally fucked it up with more money, but it was still great. And I think what I learned from being an intern where we we acquired the pilot and then, you know, maybe a year later when I was a full-time employee was that the vision was so clear. And I know that sounds so funny when you think about Jackass, but PJ Clapp, who is, um, his stage name is Johnny Knoxville, was one of the strongest uh, examples of a great leader. He had a vision and he cared a lot about how to execute the vision. And the best part of working on that show was the weekly OSHA standards and practices and legal calls that we'd get on. So it would be one collective conference call. The executives would be at MTV. We would be on mute because we literally would be on the ground crying, laughing, the guys would be at their studio and they would have in the last week come up with maybe three single space typed lists of things they wanted to do, ideas for stunts. And then they would describe it. And then everybody from standards and practices to OSHA to legal would pontificate on how they
3: could actually do this. Most of which were just absolutely outrageous ideas.
4: And so it was amazing to hear the attempt to make them How could this work? (laughs) Yeah. And so I just think that they were so the, the the conviction of what they were doing and the vision of what they were doing was so clear and it was held really by PJ. And, you know, obviously he had to keep his his little tribe together um, for for this to, to actually take shape. So I worked on on the first season and the first movie before I then went on to FX.
3: So you. In 2006, started Eventbrite. Were there lessons from your previous career in television that carried over?
4: You know, I think um, when we started Eventbrite, one of the things that I noticed when I would come up here to the Bay Area, where I'm actually from, so uh, it all worked out well, uh, was just how quickly everything changed.
3: Versus L.A.
4: Versus Hollywood at the time. And I I think it's changing, but it was like, I'll give you a good example of how slow things things were, we actually had the pilot of Breaking Bad at FX. We owned it. It went on air years later yeah a decade on the movie channel Yeah, like it was not i mean that show should have been on fx right right? and and i was there when they bought the pilot and it was brilliant it is brilliant but it just gives you an idea of sort of where everything becomes very long and convoluted and it development hell is a real thing right so um so i was really attracted to the notion of velocity and still am and when well, we ultimately decided to to settle in the Bay Area. And, you know, frankly, I was a little burned out. Ho- Hollywood at the time was like, and again, I don't know, you know, decade and plus later how this is. But for me, it was just, it was a grind. Mm-hmm. It was sort of everybody always wanted to be somebody, but yet it wasn't really clear to me sort of how you... Advanced. I'm a like a workhorse. I've been working since I was 14. So work ethic to me is just something that's ingrained. But that was like a novel idea there,
3: right? So it was just this. Yeah, the workday starts at 10 a.m. There.
4: Well, and it's all about who you know, right? And I'm not. I'm actually not very good at that. I'm not very good at like cultivating network by design. I think it best when it happens authentically, but I really actually kind of lack that skill. And so I put all those pieces together. Kevin proposes. We're like, okay, we should probably live in the same place. You know, I find a (laughs) job opening at current TV because I'm like, I'm not entrepreneurial. I'm a focus operational, get it done, make a plan and execute. So I figure this great. I'll join this startup cable network. It parlays my skills nicely. We'll get married and, you know, and be Based in the Happily Bay Happily ever after. Happily ever after with our, with our family, which actually did happen, which is amazing, just yep. in a totally different way. They gave me a lowball offer, which was the best thing that could have ever happened because it made me pause. Kevin was like, oh, wow, you shouldn't take that low offer. That's not, you know, that's not what you're worth. And, you know, you probably shouldn't even go to someone else's startup. You, you should build something and and maybe we'll build it together and we'll bootstrap it and put all of our savings into one, you know, <laughs> in a one pot. And Starting like,
3: to sound a little crazy. Yeah.
4: And I I blacked out in the moment that I said, yes, I cannot for the life of me remember the moment where I said, oh, you're right. That sounds like a good idea. So
3: it's questionable. Your husband, he's a good salesperson. He's a great you salesperson. You might have actually never said <laughs> yeah. yes. I don't actually think I said yes. And but he just I, seems like, oh, great. It's well, called the presumptive close and it worked.
4: I think it's serial entrepreneurs are missing a chip in their brain that says this might not work out. Like that chip is just not there. And so I think for Kevin, he just doesn't tend to see the ways in which something might fail. He only sees possibility. And it's this sort of infectious optimism and All I know is that I got the offer from, from this other company. It was low. I was like, huh, should I, is this, is he really worth it? Um, And then all of a sudden I'm moving out of a 42nd floor window office in Fox Plaza, which is like Nakatomi Plaza from Die Hard. And I'm driving up to San Francisco. And the next day I'm pushing sawhorses and plywood into a windowless phone closet, no joke at 208 Utah. And he's like whistling zippity doo dot, and I'm sort of going. I really hope.
3: What's happening? You're know, only <laughs> pointing at me because I actually have it. been there. I know you so can't Freddy, see it on the podcast.
4: <laughs> Freddie's been there, and I won't tell you the stories. But this this old.
3: I was an unpaid intern.
4: Freddie was an unpaid intern. Um, this in old, the phone
3: closet. Yeah, in no, well, no, at no,
4: that we at point we did. We, yeah, we yeah. have
3: actually a room with yeah. a window. Yeah,
4: we went to we went from phone. So we were in this warehouse owned by a father of um, a neighbor of Kevin's, a good friend of Kevin's. And he did something brilliant. He had us market the space for him. So we we were there for free. We marketed the space to other entrepreneurs. He then ended, uh, ended up taking minor equity positions in everyone's companies. And it was Eventbrite, Zynga, Trulia, Flickster. Foxy, yeah, there were some Flickster, good ones. Yeah. Um Opower. I mean, it
3: was pretty great. But you were the first.
4: We were the anchor tenant. And so we got the phone closet. He, he's very, he he has passed, but he was very old school in putting us in the phone closet. And as more people came, as we were successful, we got upgraded. So we got upgraded to a conference room.
3: Based on your ability to draw in other yes. tenants. Yes. So what percent of the early days of Eventbrite was spent... As a real estate agent, essentially.
4: Probably 1%. It was amazingly easy at the time to get people to come join us in this sort of collective. And there was no formality. We had this, you know, we had, it was very low brow, like low budget. It was, it was a, it was a warehouse. I mean, we really were. And it was. Um, with uh, someday, saw horses
3: with yeah. plywood boards on. Yeah. Them and for-
4: like a wall of cup of noodles. I mean, it was real. It was it was a real startup. And I feel like if I could for a minute sound like an old (laughs) curmudgeon, I don't see that type of grittiness these days around here. We work. Um, You got we work. You've got we work, you've got, you know, multi-million dollar seed investments. It just doesn't feel the same. So During the time that Freddie was an intern, we were still sort of living in that, like it was an, it was a ghost town and there weren't many startups, but we had about 10 or 12 founding teams all together in one space, which was really magical because we had bootstrapped the company. Our co-founder, Renault, was living in France. Um, it was just the three of us for the first two years. And we had these other co-founding teams and we would all get together on like Fridays and share our ideas. And I'll never forget- Over the, lunch. Over lunch. And the Flickster guys, Joe and Saran, yep. remember they, totally. they got the phone closet totally. and they wallpapered their phone closet with ideas on Post-its and they would come out with like three or four every week. And I'll never forget when they came out and they were like, okay, it's a coupon. It's for restaurants. It gets better- when more people buy it and we're like, nah, get back in there. And it was like completely Groupon, right. you know, it was amazing. And we told them that that idea stunk. So no, get
3: back in the phone <laughs> get closet. See what <laughs> <laughs> you come up with next Don't week. Don't come back
4: until you have movies. <laughs> um, so I think, I think those years were incredibly formative for us because, and, and to get back to your original question, I think what I brought to the mix was, One of my superpowers is empathy. And I think that helped me in media because basically what you're looking for is to make people feel something and to understand what they're feeling. And you can't actually help influence how somebody feels unless you can read how they're feeling. And so there was this notion that I was basically focused on the people side of the business, which were our customers. So I was identifying event creators who would benefit from our platform and then helping them on board and getting all of their feedback and then giving that to Kevin and he would build, he would spec out the features and build the product. And then Renault would, would engineer everything. We'd all QA essentially with our, with our event creators. Uh, And it was super quaint and it was very small. And I also think that gets lost along the way these days where things have to start out as, seeds there there needs to be a seed of an idea and it needs to be able to grow and it needs to be able to defend itself against harsh climates right so what began as something very very quaint started to gain traction really about 12 months in and by the time we went out to raise our first round of funding in 2008 we had traction we understood that we had identified a really interesting mid market in events that it was potentially massive, and that we had been able to um, essentially democratize ticketing through offering this self-service platform.
3: So since you were there, in the, what was a, that Eventbrite closet actually like? It was a small little dark dungy closet, that's for sure. No windows, kind of claustrophobic. And I'm not even, I don't get claustrophobic <laughs> easily, and I definitely was in that room. When you say closet, are we like... Talking about... Phone booth. Couple phone booths. That right. was the office? You take a phone booth and maybe you stack like three deep and three wide. Nine by nine phone booth. That's what we're talking about. And how many people were in there? Uh, three of them. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, Julia, and Renault. Did they have a table? Yeah. One in the middle. And then they kind of sat around it. You know, what's interesting. You hear a lot of people talk about the magic of the startup spirit, but there's a flip side to that, which is that working at a startup means you're working seven days a week, 14, 15 hours a day. It's not for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think what people often forget about the garage days is that you're in that garage and you're in there all the time. So you're working day, you're working night. Sometimes you even live in there. If you're Aaron Levy, you're, you're, li- <laughs> you're living in there. If you Levy, you live in that garage. And when that happens, you forget what it feels like to even take a break. Yeah, you're not taking vacation, You're barely, you're probably not even opening the door to the garage. You probably are once in a while because it just starts to smell in there. (laughs) Right. You got to air it out. (laughs) You got to air it out because it probably doesn't have any windows. It's a windowless garage. Our next guest is somebody who doesn't even know how to take a vacation. He tried one time and how'd that work out for him? He started a company the next day. (laughs) couldn't do it. (laughs) And he couldn't couldn't hack it. His name is Josh James. He's the co-founder of web analytics company Omniture and the founder of the SaaS company Domo. I'm pretty sure Josh never sleeps. You were tired and frustrated. I'm sure you were this old, you know, tired, crusty entrepreneur. You were 33 years old. Is that right? That was 36 at the time. Oh, I was going oh, through I'm that sorry. part. Yeah. Yeah. That phase. Yeah.
2: Sorry. That sorry. midlife crisis. Yeah. was 36. You had two ideas. Yeah. I had two ideas. And one of them uh, was just, it, it came to me when I went to see Expedia, who was a very large customer of ours. They were paying us seven figures a year. And I was meeting with, uh, uh, one of the CXOs at Expedia and they told me we made $12 million off of your product last month. Like, thank you. This is an awesome product. And they showed me how they did it. And I was like, wow, they, we really did make them $12 million. That's amazing. And then they were like, by the way, how's your company doing? We're a public company. And I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, things are going really well. How many employees do you guys have now? No clue. I mean, I know plus or minus a hundred. Right but I only get the numbers once a quarter now because we're public. And actually I don't even get my numbers until after the CFO gets the numbers that he needs to do the earnings call. And I was like, this is so stupid. This just doesn't make sense. You know, they asked me about sales and they asked me about retention and I just, I don't know any of the numbers, but especially headcount, that was an easy one for me to solve for. I'm like, well, we pay people every two weeks. So at a minimum, I should have that's not a hard calculation to run how many employees I have and uh, it should be available on my phone. And like Facebook was there and um, then Airbnb with all this great design. And I remember just thinking like this should be the enterprise experience. And so when I left, uh, that was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and solve it. And I tried to solve it too. We tried to build CEO dashboards. We bought every BI product under the sun. I had my own team that kind of rolled their own and that didn't work. Nothing worked. This is at Omniture. At Omniture. Yeah. And I know data as well as anybody, because I've been doing it forever, certainly the application of it and how you use it to run your business. So I knew that it was possible, but no one had done it. Come to find out the reason no one had done it is because they'd all come from the technical side. They'd all come from solving big data issues and ETL and writing SQL code and making something that had really powerful query tour tools. And that wasn't the experience that I was looking for. You were coming at it from a customer perspective, like what was what was the the vantage point that was helpful? I think in technology, we're like, why hasn't someone made a better phone yet? Like we know these technologies, why hasn't somebody done it? And for me, it's kind of the same thing. Like I know data. I know what the experience should be like. Why hasn't someone just put it together to create this experience to really help you run your business on your phone? And no one had done that. In fact, like even getting data and making it work automatically mobile while it works for your laptop and works for Android and works for, no one had done that. And so just, we started with, Here's all your, here's all your data on your phone. Well, in order to do that, First, you got to get the data in. To get the data in, you got to build a bunch of connectors. Once the data in, it gets in, then you got to organize it and build a bunch of ETL tools. Once it's in, you got to store it in a place that allows you to query billions upon billions or tens of billions or in some cases, a trillion rows of data for our customers. And that's really difficult to do. And then after all that, you build a visualization layer and analytics layer. And then you got to make it so that it works on mobile. And then you want to put some machine learning and AI on top of it. And then you want to put apps on top of it. And it truly, really is for us like seven startups in one but it's all integrated and it's amazing what it can do. But people think about us as, oh, a I was gonna right say, now. What's the hard part? That sounds pretty <laughs> <laughs> The
3: You were talking about the day you left Omniture when you left Adobe after the acquisition. Yeah. yeah. And it was a- My great day of insignificance. How, talk more about that day and
2: talk about the day after. So that day, you know, I'd always heard from people like they take breaks and they recharge. And I remember I, I called Senator Hatch's office and I didn't get a call back. I called, uh, an executive that used to work for me. I didn't get a call back. And Senator Hatch in the past yeah. would, would call you back. Yeah. He'd call me back. Yeah. I had one of the biggest companies and the most interesting companies and the, you know, in Utah, the yep. most successful sale in the history of Utah at that point. That was a day that I realized, man, having that P and L, allows you to do things when you have ideas. It's not that I want, I don't really care about the ego and like their notoriety, but when you want to get something accomplished, it's a lot more fun. when You can pull a lever that has a P and L behind it. And so I realized that actually I get a lot of pleasure and satisfaction out of doing that. So I'm like, I got to do another one. I got to do another one. So the next day I started it. The next day. Yeah. So
3: you took, one day. One day, maybe, but probably not even one day because you were already making phone calls to right. I don't think you'd uh, get think That, you that call night, up. so uh, like <laughs> that morning, so the next day, so... On day one, you wake up in the morning and you you called Hatch just to check in, just to check in. Just, hey, what's up, morning? What are you doing, bro, what's you up? Play tennis? Hey, what are you doing this afternoon? You know, I got a tea time at one. But he didn't call back. He didn't call me back. back. So you're like, well, I guess I should missed start a the company. tea time. And then by like
2: four <laughs> p.m., you're like, I got to start another. <laughs> <one>. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. That's pretty much how it went. But,
3: and did you know what the idea
2: was at that yeah, point? You know, been, I had you, those two you, ideas that I was trying yeah. to keep out of my head because, for twenty-four as an entrepreneur, like it can be so distracting you for constantly thinking about new companies. So I would. ignore But that one was always back there. So yeah, I went and uh, I'd already owned the domain name CEO and co.com. And uh, I started a company to do that and hired my old assistant and hired a CTO and then went and bought this graphing charting engine that hadn't really done anything for 10 years, but I knew it was scalable because we used them at Omniture and it was in Utah. And so then I had $10 million of revenue and 60 employees. And then I just had to change that around to what I needed it to be. And that took four or five years of stealth mode.
3: So you said that you want Domo to be
2: a $50 billion business
3: by the time you're done. Yeah. You're in no rush. Yeah. But, but next year would be good. Well, next year would be a good year or the year after. (laughs) I'm Uh, in no rush to sell. (laughs) Yeah. So, so how do you, how do you, you, you've been through this experience as a, as a, as a tired over the hill, 36 year old, sell your company. you're on vacation for one day. You start your next company that you've now taken public and you seem more energized than the day I first met you like five years ago. You're like more jacked up. You don't need any coffee. You're in here, you're fired up, you're ready to go. And you're gonna build a business, a $50 billion business, which I have no doubt you're gonna do. How do you think about that ahead? You take it day by day, you take it week by week. That's a very uh, big goal that
2: you've set up. It's a you know BHAG. Big, yeah, Harry audacious goal. I think the way that I think about it is, there was this thing that I always got reminded of because it was a it was a, it was seen as a negative that I was the youngest CEO of a public company. But in my head, I'm like, well, if I'm the youngest CEO of a public company, that means I'll be the youngest person that's starting a new one that's been CEO of a public company. And one thing I noticed when you'd go around and you'd meet the people that had the biggest companies, they all had decades in the seat, and. So I'm like I still got decades in front of me. I got to pick at a big enough market opportunity and then we'll just grind through it because the way I've always thought about it is I meet a bunch of CEOs and half of them I'm like, well, they're smarter than me or they're quicker than me or they, you know, they have better EQ than I do. But the other half that I meet that are successful, I'm like, <laughs> i've definitely got something on him or i got something on her you know it's it's they haven't been untouched by an angel yeah they haven't been untouched by an angel they don't know how to fake it like i know how to fake it um (laughs) and yeah so i think that's it just it's just it's possible and i've always thought i remember being in high school i mean i'm sorry when i my freshman year in college and we'd go sit up on top of the mountain and look down over the valley and be like someone's got to be on top why not me
3: Okay, what did we learn, Freddie? What do we learn? I feel like listening to a lot of these guests today, there's this joy in the, those early days where anything is possible, but at the same time, you're kind of fumbling around in the dark, and you don't quite, you have some suspicions, you have some ideas, you don't know how it's going to come together. Yeah, but you got to keep moving forward. You have to maintain the faith. You have to maintain the scrappiness. But moving forward in which direction, you know? Doesn't matter. Just keep moving forward. If you hit a wall, you're going to take a right and then keep going. It's different, though, than big established legacy companies, which are like steaming forward like a tanker. Yeah. No, tankers take three miles to stop on the open waters. Here, you have the opportunity to stop, pivot, change. Whatever you need to do, you need to keep moving forward. Momentum is very hard to regain once you've lost it. But if you're constantly exploring and shifting direction and and going in one way and going in the other way to try to figure out what the right product is, how do you build momentum? You can't be constantly shifting and changing direction. You have to pick lanes and you got to go down those lanes. You're never going to have perfect information. You have to get as much information as quickly as possible. You got to make decisions and keep moving. If the decision is wrong... You'll take a break. You'll take a step back. You'll take a look around. You'll be like, that didn't work. Let's try something else. But you can't keep constantly shifting. Actually, I think that's a huge problem. I think people need to make decisions, have conviction, get as much information as you can, and then get rolling. you got to keep moving. Okta is, uh, in 2019, hitting its 10-year anniversary. We are. What do you keep from the original startup ethos of the company when it was just you and Todd on borrowed desks at Alex Lasaley's office at Jawbone? Yeah, it's actually funny. We had a couple signs early on in the life of the company that I kept up over my desk. Uh, The first one was a quote from Herb Keller, the founder of Southwest Airlines. It said, we have a strategic plan. It's called doing things. And I think that was very important because the idea was you got to keep moving. You got to get shit done. And you know, people who come from very large companies, the very small environments. They spend a lot of time, you know, building up plans and strategies. And you just got to execute because you only have so much money, you're going to run out of time. You got to get going. The second thing we had to sign up after that, I took the first sign down. I put another sign up is called you got to keep the main thing, the main thing, because then there's so many things that are starting to happen. that You can be doing all these different things and then you're actually not doing anything at all or you're doing a lot of things very poorly. You took those signs down? They don't exist at Octane anymore? I still have them, but they're not up on the wall anymore. I guess you moved beyond the garage days. No, I put them up in my garage. Oh, are they? Yeah. Literally? Yeah. Those signs are in your garage now? Those signs are in my garage, where I have my five-year-old building things. (laughs) Did you think about that when you, you know, it's like they're in your garage because those were your your garage days? Uh, No, no. I, I mean, I'd love to tell you that I did, but that's not the case. Basically, it was because my wife wouldn't let me put them up anywhere else in the house. But you still have some fond memories of them. I don't know about fond. I think uh, I, are they like I think framed? They're the, no, they're the backdrop for the dartboard. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Zero to IPO, a podcast about how to keep the startup spirit alive even after you've outgrown the garage. Special thanks to our guests, Aaron Levy, Maggie Wilderotter, Julia Hartz, and Josh James for taking the time out of their busy schedules to speak with us and to the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for collaborating with Okta to bring this podcast to life. If you like what you've heard and you want to know more, check out exclusive in-depth stories from each episode on fastcompany.com. And to hear the next step in taking a company from zero to IPO, make sure to subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Frederick Harris. I'm Joshua Davis, and we hope you'll tune in for our next episode, The First Big Win. Thanks for listening.
2: And there's a reason the elephants are at the back of the zoo. The zookeepers do that for a reason. They make everyone walk through the rest of the zoo, see the small animals, and buy stuff. Then you get to the prize at the end.